0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for March 2018, Volume 56, Number 3. My name is David Fisackley, DTB's Deputy Editor.
1: Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief.
0: Our editorial this month questions whether, when managing blood pressure, we should be putting the patient first. Don't we put the patient first at the moment?
1: Well, I think we've been looking at the new American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association joint guidelines on uh, hypertension, And we've been looking at the fact that this has created quite a bit of uh, noise due to them suggesting that actually any patient with a blood pressure over 130 over 80 um, should be considered as having hypertension. So we've been looking at really the issues that that has caused. And I think... First of all, it's important to recognise that actually hypertension is a major cause worldwide of premature death and disability, and that anything we can do to reduce that risk is a good thing. But obviously, there is a, another side to that, and uh, we look into that in a bit of detail.
0: But what we do know is that data from observational studies suggest that even blood pressures as low as 115 over 75 is associated with increased mortality from vascular causes...
1: Yes, that's right. And of course, and also adding to the mix is the SPRINT study, which I think is now two years old, which demonstrated that even treating what we might have in the past considered to be well-controlled blood pressure with antihypertensives led to a reduction in overall death rate. So there's a number of things coming together here with a feeling that really we should
0: be doing more. But overall, clinical guidelines for the management of hypertension have become far more complicated over the years?
1: Yeah, so I think there are two, perhaps three issues here that we have a think about in our editorial. First of all, there's the issue of overmedicalization, the issue of unexpected consequences to patients, telling them that they have some condition which increases their risks. Um, then, of the course, there's also, if you do have to uh, treat them with medication, there's adverse effects from that. There's that element to it. And then there's the fact that we have... It almost feels like we're getting such complex guidelines now that it's very difficult for anyone to know where you are in them and very difficult for the clinician to be able to express to the patient what that means for them. Even our own NICE guidelines, which have been around since 2011, have different steps for different levels and then you have an issue where if the patient does have end organ damage or doesn't or does have a cardiovascular risk over 20% that has an impact and trying to explain to the patient in front of you what does that mean to me doctor what you are doing to me how is that going to benefit for me I find I think that's now been lost somewhere in in the complexity of it all
0: so I was touching back on our editorial from previous month when we looked at the need to have guidelines that express things in a way that is meaningful to patients? There certainly seems to be a crying need for, when it comes to managing hypertension, to have something that talks patients through both the options and the implications of treatment and helps them make a decision.
1: This is it. And I think, you know, every GP in England, certainly with COF, has sort of now been living with a situation where if you manage to get a threshold at one point, you are successful, you have done good, whereas perhaps the patient is left completely unclear what's going on, whereas another doctor who perhaps is more patient-centred actually talks to the patient, discusses the options, and the patient perhaps decides for them that they don't want to control their blood pressure up to this predetermined threshold, but actually want to do other things to improve their health. That is considered a failure as far as the guidance are concerned, but I would imagine actually for the patient is is actually a success.
0: So more about putting the patient back in control of setting what the target and outcome should be rather than just slavishly sticking to a guideline. Absolutely right. Thank you. Our first main article this month reviews evidence for dupilumab, which is a new treatment for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Let's step back. What do we or how do we currently treat atopic dermatitis? What are our options?
1: So the treatment for uh, atopic dermatitis has been the same for at least 30 years, I would have thought. Uh, We have obviously emollients as a sort of backstop. Then we have steroid creams. And then as we step up the ladder, we can talk about systemic treatments. And at the very top, we have Uh, Cyclosporin and systemic steroids with um, some off-label treatments sometimes used such as azathioprine um, and methotrexate. But in many respects, the treatment of atopic dermatitis hasn't changed for decades.
0: So the only... S- systemic treatment for severe disease at the moment that's licensed in this country is cyclosporine. That's right, yeah. So what does dupilimab offer us? What is it? So this is a, um,
1: as its name implies, it's a clonal antibody, and this is an injection, and it's given as a single uh, loading dose, which is double the standard dose, and then every fortnight you have a further subcutaneous injection. And as I say, we look at uh,
0: the benefit of, of this treatment in our in our article. And all the studies we look at are placebo-controlled?
1: Yeah, so it's always disappointing, isn't it, when you get a new treatment, and it was uh, launched in a blaze of publicity as the first, you know, specifically designed treatment for atopic eczema. And yet what's really disappointing is they haven't actually tested it against, you know, the other licensed treatment for moderate to severe eczema, which is cyclosporine, as we say. So we just have three randomized controlled trials versus placebo
0: Relatively short term. Again, we have to recognise that what companies need to do in order to get a licence is is meet the licensing authority requirements for thresholds. So what we've got is essentially evidence that lasts up to 16 weeks in terms of efficacy and up to a year in terms of, of harms. Overall efficacy?
1: Yes. I mean, I think the thing to point out here is these were adults. So we're only talking about adults at the moment. And these were patients with a significant history of atopic eczema. So the, the typical patient in these studies had had atopic eczema for 25 years. They had it affecting about 50% of their body area. And about a third of these patients have been treated with systemic steroids in the past and over 25% with immunosuppressants. So these, this is the, you know, the tip of the iceberg. You know, About 2% of all patients with atopic eczema develop severe Uh, moderate-severe, atopic eczema, and that's what this drug was tested on.
0: But for that group, it it was better than placebo?
1: Yes, and it was um, significantly better than placebo. Um, We're not talking about something which you can just demonstrate statistically. There were definite clinical benefits.
0: So any harms we should worry about?
1: It's a monoclonal antibody, and it works by suppressing the inflammatory response. So obviously there are concerns regarding its uh, effect on both infection risk and, in the long term, perhaps, a malignancy risk, and there are ongoing studies to look at that. But it's a, actually, its a side effect profile compared to placebo was pretty good, with no difference in uh, dropouts between placebo group and the, the uh, drug group.
0: The one area that caught our eye in terms of number of adverse effects was to do with Eye effects?
1: Yeah, so the eye symptoms were the one area where there was there was a difference. So things like dry eyes, conjunctivitis. About six percent of patients in the dupilumab group developed problems like that, compared to about two to three percent in the placebo group. And cost? So we're talking about about one thousand two hundred and sixty-five pounds a month, which obviously is considerably more than
0: uh, cyclosporin. And at the moment, no national guidance on its place?
1: No, so no one has produced any guidelines for this at this stage, either in uh, this country or
0: in Wales or Scotland. So quite difficult to know quite where it sits, but possibly... for patients who don't respond to cyclosporine
1: yes i think we're stuck aren't we this this obviously is a, a therapeutic drug it works the question is is it better or worse than cyclosporin? so you know hopefully there will be a comparative study comparing the two then of course as always with new drugs particularly i think with this uh, type of drug there's a the concern of long term you know is anything going to come out of the woodwork and in the next couple of years. But it all being well, this will definitely you know, have a place for patients who uh, either don't respond to or don't tolerate cyclosporine.
0: Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month looks at drug names. So what yes. what do we cover in this?
1: Yes, we just I, I, this has been something which has sort of been on the back of our mind for a while. And that is that there's a lot of history behind drug names, both sort of uh, going back into the past about how people decided on drug names when we talk about um, warfarin and nystatin and the sort of the rather lovely times and the sort of slightly um, romantic period when people would decide that they were going to call their drugs based on where they were and what they did and we've talked about that but we've also talked about now how drugs get their name from the chemical name which is all wrapped up in the international union of of pure and applied chemistry to how they get their generic name or more properly perhaps called their international non-proprietary name uh, and then obviously also their brand name and the guidance that's that goes around how that is
0: determined and one note of caution that, that that we also cover is the potential for confusion over drug names
1: yes we um we just uh in fact it was it was quite timely the MHRA uh, must have heard we were doing this, and they've actually recently produced uh, concern about the use of or or the, the difficulty around names. Things like trazodone and tramadol, and other drugs which which can be complicated. My myself is it's a bit old now, but um, I once treated someone uh, with a fungal nail infection with tofenidine for three months rather than tobinofine. Patient came to no no harm, but nor did their fungal nail infection. But uh, there you are, you see. So we all we all make mistakes, and I think you know. These days, I think one of the problems we have is with computerized systems, whilst they often have more fail-safes, a lot of us only know how to spell the first four letters of a a drug and we rely on the uh, computer to do the rest for us. So it is just a timely warning to be very careful about drug names.
0: Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com and for any comments or suggestions for future content, please email us at dtb at bmj.com thank you very much